actually have that conversation with your parents um, about what you want to achieve and be realistic and uh, about what you can achieve. Because if I had had that conversation with my parents a decade before, uh, and not that I'm complaining, but I would be a lot better off than I am today because time is actually your greatest enemy. You need time to pay off a mortgage. And of course, every day you're not paying off mortgage, you're paying rent. Last time we delved into the intergenerational housing debate. But the fact is, that debate is not going away. So now we're going to talk about what you can do despite rising property prices. I'm going to talk to Emily Wallace. She's a buyer's advocate, and that means she represents you, not the person selling the property, to make sure that you get a really good deal. Emily helps her clients get a fair price and also has access to off-market properties, which means they're not yet listed online. We are the complete opposite to a real estate agent. In its simplest forms, we advocate for a buyer in a property transaction, whether that be their first home, family home, investment property. Um, And we make sure that a buyer is represented fairly and equally. So a lot of people probably don't realise or don't comprehend that the real estate agent is incentivised and engaged by the vendor. They're there to get the highest price possible and act in the best interest of the vendor. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But when a buyer starts to entrust that agent I think sometimes they forget that they're representing themselves and they've got to fend for themselves in that. And if it's not something you do regularly, um, there could be mistakes that you could make or um, uh, traps that you can fall into. So a buyer's advocate takes away that stress for you by their experience. And we also do a lot in the space of off-market properties that you can't find online. Let's just back up a bit. What is a vendor? It's the person selling the house, right? Yeah, interchangeable terms, vendor slash seller, same thing, someone who's selling a property. If you had told me 12 months ago that we would be in this red hot market situation, um, I certainly wouldn't have believed it. I mean, I can't believe what we're seeing here. Why is this happening? Yeah, it's a, it's a perfect storm really in the real estate world as to why the market is the way that it is. So obviously, um, a large chunk of it coming from people spending a lot of time at home during COVID and wanting more space. Um, The work from home component, meaning that people can work from anywhere, essentially, um, and that's driving a lot of lifestyle change. Uh, The mere fact that people are saving money, you know, a lot of people had planned weddings or major life events that they ended up, you know, putting towards a house deposit instead of going traveling or having their wedding. Um, And, the biggest thing is the the supply and demand equation, and I harp on about this all the time. You've probably heard on Instagram, but the supply and demand equation is the baseline of the market. And the issue we have, particularly in the major capital cities, is we have too much demand, not enough supply, and that's not even factoring in migration. I mean, we haven't opened up our borders properly yet. So this is just competition within Australia itself. Um, And that really is the crux of why the market is the way that it is. Do you think a lot of this is coming from the support of older generations saying we want you to have a secure home? I mean, how much of it is family support and how much of it is independent? Great question. I think um, more and more millennials are leaning on parents, um, not so much, you know, a cash handout by any means, probably more through a guarantor loan, um, which, you know, is leveraging a property that the parents own that they can use against um, 
and other purchasers security to help them get into the market. You're 28 and from what I understand you have two investment properties already. Well done. How did you go about entering the market? Um, So my first purchase I made when I was 23 um, and that purchase was purely off my own research um, and time in the market. So um, I bought in the west of Melbourne, in uh, just outside of Melton, in Melton South in the end. Um, I This is as simple as it was, and please don't use this as advice. It's um, just how I did it. doesn't mean that it's the right way, but I basically drew a ring around Melbourne um, and worked out the proximity to CBD and the cost um, of those areas of median um, house prices and looked at what I could afford and where I thought the growth would be. Um, I strategically picked where I ended up buying because um, across from from where I bought, there was a massive vacant paddock. Um, it was huge. And I was thinking it can't be a paddock forever. Um, and funnily enough, it's now been uh, proposed and approved for a brand new primary school, a sporting ground and a new shopping centre, um, which I didn't know at the time. So my property values has gone up considerably well. Um, so that was investment number one. Um, so it was a three bedroom, two bathroom, um, you know, newer build. It was I bought it when I was at Slab and Frame. Um, and then my second one is a lot more recent. I bought that property about two months ago. Um, so sort of in mid 2021. Um, and that property I actually enlisted the help of an investment buyer's advocate and I ended up buying in uh, Gracemere, which is just outside of Rockhampton up in Queensland. Another um, another house, it was a four, it is a four bed, two bar thing. It's got a double garage. I haven't seen it. Um, this is how my, my mindset has changed. Like I haven't physically been there to see it. Um, the numbers stack up and um, yeah, I bought it about two months ago. You're, you're what? you know, we generally call a rent vesta. So you're renting where you want to live and you've got your investment in Melton South and your investment in Rockhampton. Rockhampton's a really interesting one given that you you haven't seen it. When you talk about the numbers stacking up, what does that mean? So um, I think, you know, I had, I've matured in age and also in investor mindset between the two purchases and really the mindset I went into this time was very non-emotional. Um, I didn't actually want to see the property because I didn't want to, um, you know, get fickle about it and, and pick up things and, and want to fix things with it because it was fine as it is. Um, and when I say the numbers stack up, what I mean by that is the purchase price um, in relation to the loan repayments and then looking at the rental return, um, for context of, of numbers, it's it's very positively cash flowed. It's, it's positively geared. Um, I paid 384 at 380,000 and the rental return is 450 per week. So the yield is really strong and it's in um, a predicted growth zone. I entrusted the advocate um, on their very conservative projections of that area. Um, and obviously, you know, in 12, 24 months time, we'll start to see if those are in fact correct. Tell me a little bit about how, how it works in terms of getting that first property, then getting the second. What does it look like in terms of the amount of money that you have to put up Mm. versus the amount of money that you're using in um, what we call equity? Yeah, definitely. So to get into the market, I did leverage a guarantor loan. So my input um, to get into Melton was quite minimal. I think I only had 10% of the 335. So I think it was like 33K that I had to put in. Um, And the rest was 
covered by the guarantor for costs and, and the remainder of the 10%. Um, then when I went to buy my uh, most recent one, I was actually hoping to go on a guarantor loan again because I had released the guarantor from the initial one and I could leverage them again. Um, in the meantime, the guarantor being dad has also helped out my brothers into property and um, his guarantor is maxed at the moment. So um, I was fortunate I'd actually did have 20% deposit um, good to go for my next one um, and I, I put the cash in. As for the following one, I'm really banking on getting some equity behind me in both of my existing properties so that my outlay on my third one is minimal. I really don't want to be putting up um, very much, probably a 5%, which I'll probably just have to negotiate um, what the uh, vendor is happy to take as a, as a down payment. Um, but I really want to leverage my equity to get into the next one. Can you talk to me a little bit generally about what you think is going to happen in Australia in, say, the next 12 months? Are we going to continue to see strong market? Will we see any corrections? What's going on? Um, I think fundamentally we still need more construction to occur. So when I say construction, I'm actually more referring to house and land packages in greenfield estates where a lot of first-home buyers do um, plant themselves because that's what they can afford. Um, and the land component of it is, I mean, as we always say, they're not making any more land. So land is starting to come at a premium. I actually can't believe what lots are selling for at the moment. And they're not even full block sizes. It's crazy. So then when that doesn't start to make sense, people are looking you know, for regional towns where they can get a lot more for their money in terms of land value. So with the sort of halt on construction that's sort of been a domino effect from COVID, plus the sea change, tree change mentality, and looking regionally, I don't see the market dropping um, in the next 12 months. I actually don't think that's going to happen. If anything, I think we'll start to see the supply and demand equation start to level out as construction starts to pick up again, um, and they start to sell more land lots in those greenfield estates. We might see a bit of return to the CBDs. Obviously, there's a large um, vacancy in the apartment market in all major capital cities at the moment, um, but I really don't think a drop. Just just a start to even out of the market, which will be a welcome change, I'm sure. What advice do you have to young people who are trying to enter the market and, and feeling like, I just keep losing out to investors or, you know, my, my bid's never high enough and, you know, I see an advertised price and it ends up selling for far more than that. What, what can you say to people who are feeling perhaps a little disheartened at this point in time? Is this still a good investment? Is it worth it? I definitely believe it's worth it because at the end of the day, as the historical data shows, property only ever goes up in value over time. So um, getting in when it's financially um, viable for you to do so is key. For those people who are feeling deflated by missing out continually and, you know, their bid's never high enough and they feel like they're getting priced out, what I would say is don't um, wait too long to realise you might be priced out in a particular area. I think some people ride on hope for a bit too long that it might drop and given the indicator that it's unlikely to drop anytime soon, you might need to reassess where that new patch might be for you, particularly if it's a house to live in, um, as to what you can afford, whilst trying to get a balance of not compromising on your ideals when it comes to lifestyle as well. 
Some people will opt to go into a smaller property if it means being in the right location, whereas other people would prefer a larger property and they're happy to compromise on their location. Everybody's different. Just make sure you're aware of what's fundamental to you um, and don't compromise on that. Do you believe an apartment is still a good investment? Is any property a good investment or are there investments that are perhaps not as viable from from a capital growth and return perspective? What I would say is you need to evaluate the outgoings and the cost of actually maintaining that property itself. So, you know, with um, apartments, you have strata fees, you have um, the the body corporate that's, you know, governing those fees as well that can be subject to change. It's hard to forecast the ongoing costs of those properties. Um, personally, if put it this way, if I had my choice of buying an apartment versus a, a house with land, I would personally take the house with land because the land is where the value really is. But if an apartment is all that you can afford to get into the market, then I feel that getting into the market is important um, and it, it may well be the best option that you have. What happens in the next sort of 20, 30, 40 years if people are retiring without a home, in your view? What does that, what does that look like? I don't think it's an issue if they're a, a lifelong rent investor and they've got investment properties to support their retirement. Um, but if they're only ever going to be renting and, and have no ownership of property, then their retirement, um, you'd want to hope there's some investment in shares or portfolios or a large super fund to help um, underpin that or the next generation is going to have to start helping out. Just to wrap up, I'm really keen to get your thoughts just um, generally on what young people who are, you know, saving a deposit, perhaps looking at auctions or looking at inspections. Can you give me, say, you know, three or four tips for people who are who are entering the market who want to make a great decision? What what sort of are the, what are the non-negotiables? Definitely. So I think um, fundamentally, a lot of people overlook the time frame to get their finance sorted, which actually informs their overall decision. So just. I guess as a side note, make sure you do have your finances in order and prepare to go for a loan. Obviously, most banks are looking at three months um, of transactions, so prepare for that and get a broker on board who can talk you through it. For the actual non-negotiables of buying the property, I think it really is, particularly if you're buying with somebody else um, and there's two decision makers involved, writing down your must-haves and your nice-to-haves and working out where the barriers are that you're coming up against if you're being too picky. You need to be a little bit hard on yourself. I mean, you could be being too picky on certain things. Um, And I think the biggest thing, as I mentioned before, work out that location versus lifestyle of the actual property itself. Is it, you know, can you compromise on space to have a good location or is it vice versa? Um, And try not to sway from that too much because you don't want to have um, regretful decision making of of that purchase. Um, So make sure it aligns with what you want and what's important to you. And what about if people are bidding at auction? Is there anything that they can do to um, to try and beat out the competition? So a lot of people don't stand at the front of auctions. I always do. Advocates always do. We stand at the front next to the auctioneer and look out. It is an intimidation slash power play um, sort of tactic, I guess, more than anything. But look out and, and watch who else is bidding and, and do try to intimidate. Um, The biggest piece of advice for auctions is do not make decisions in the auction. Do not start deciding, oh, just 1,000 more, just 2,000 more in the auction. Write a limit and it must be your absolute walk away limit. If it sells for $1,000 more, you've got to be happy with that. 
um, and decide on it the morning of the auction, write it down, commit it, and do not go beyond the limit. So it was really good to pick up a few avos of wisdom from Emily. It's important to remember that a buyer's advocate works for you rather than the seller, and they make sure you're represented fairly. It does come at a cost, but that might be offset by the fair price you achieve in the purchase process. Think about where there are opportunities for growth in the market. That means you might be buying not necessarily where you want to live, but where the market has the potential to grow and you can make money on that investment. Next up, I want to talk to Alex, who's really passionate about having a holistic strategy to secure her financial future. Figure out what you want your life to look like at 60. That's what Alex has done. If the pension's not going to cut it, now is the time to make those adjustments. So, Alex from Broke Girl Wealth, uh, really successful on Instagram and TikTok. I'm really impressed with you. I am definitely a decade older than you, but I like to think we're still peers. Um, Tell me a little bit about your life growing up. What I want to specifically know to begin with is what kind of house did you grow up in? Where was it? Tell me about your early days of housing. My childhood was really growing up on a construction site because we were renovating for a really, really long time. But most of my memories of home are just really uh, quite frugal. My parents were very focused on paying down the mortgage. That was a real focus for them. And things like not having a bathroom for a couple of months. And we always talk about fondly about you know, having to go to the swimming pool have a shower because we were renovating and living in the house that we were renovating so property to me is this really interesting mix of um you know it can be an asset but it was also such a like that house we grew I grew up in was almost like it's a main character in my life like there was accidents and there was things that broke but I really feel like our family home had was a character in the family and so much of our family unit revolved around you know the renovation and what we were doing in the house and that really shaped my childhood it is a main character so tell me what happened after um I guess you grew up a little bit and started to see I guess the reality of 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 what the financial situation was for your family and how that shaped your your views moving forward Mm. so my parents got divorced and I think I realized at that point that your family home isn't enough I really started thinking about what do I want my future to look like and was it the best decision for them to prioritize paying down the mortgage or was it actually better for them to think about what happens in retirement and do we have any income generating assets because a family home while important and certainly you're not paying rent you are paying maintenance and council rates and updates but it's not generating any income unless you've got a granny flat or some sort of um source of income from that property which a lot of people don't okay your parents separated and reading between the lines I'm hearing that that was kind of the starting point for you going okay I don't necessarily want to be in a situation where I've got to divide assets I want I want my own financial security what did that look like for you I I've grown up in a house with a lot of matriarchs 
And despite the fact that, you know, my family's ethnic and they're still quite patriarchal in some ways, there was this real sense of you need to be financially independent. My dad would say that to me all the time. Like, you need to be your own person emotionally, professionally, and financially. And I actually think that's really great advice for young women because the one thing it unlocked for me was that I didn't have to wait to buy a house, right? I didn't have to have a partner. I could actually look at buying a house on my own. And I think that really got me thinking, well, what do I want as my first significant asset? And I was living at home. I probably moved out of home a little bit later than a lot of other people do. But at the time I was looking at jobs uh, for like all over Australia, I was finishing my degree and I was thinking about potentially moving down to Canberra and working in you know, policy. I didn't really know if I wanted to be a lawyer at the time. And I started looking at the Canberra rental market as an option, just sort of, well, if I'm gonna be moving down there, what if I didn't get the job, would that apartment still make sense? And that was really what, started me thinking about property in a different way. It didn't have to be a home was the first thing I realized. And it didn't have to be six, seven, eight, nine, a million dollars. It could actually be something that I could afford on my own. And if I didn't move down there, I could rent and still actually manage that mortgage. And ultimately, from what I understand, you didn't move there. You live in Sydney Mm. now. And so now you've got that property as an investment. Tell me a little bit about the process of saving that deposit, securing that home. Did you do it on your own? Like what was involved? Saving the deposit took a long time and I didn't really, I wasn't really sure what I was saving for. I started out, I had a really bad spending habit. Um, I really related to your stories. I was waking up one day and being like, oh my God, I have all this credit card debt. And um, literally my credit card was maxed out. That really was a wake up call for me. And I was like 18. I was so scared and freaked out. Thank God the bank didn't give me a larger credit limit because it would have been much worse. But once I sort of got my head on straight, I was sort of saving and I would, I actually used term deposits as my (laughs) kind of lock the money away of choice at the time term deposit rates were around 3%. That was the heyday of term deposit. <laughs> no one yeah, can fathom yeah. that kind of return these days. But I was sort of, you know, I, I sold my car and I was working full time and studying and I just poured it into savings, essentially. Do you, do you set up a budget? Do you look at your income and, and, you know, the leftover funds after expenses? Talk me through what that involves. What I found really worked for me was to set aside my expenses first. So I would take like my annual expenses or quarterly or car insurance, whatever, and I would break that down into its fortnightly amounts so that I could actually take out of my pay straight away and that meant that whatever was left over was a mixture of savings and spending money and then what I would do is try to work back from some sort of indicative date so if I wanted to buy in May or whatever two years from now three years from now split that goal up into its fortnightly amount and work from there 
And the reason I found that strategy worked for me best is just putting all of your expenses and your sort of long-term savings into one account did not work for my brain because I would just see that lump of money and go, oh, there's more than enough to cover car insurance. Great, I've got excess cash. I can just dip into it to cover, you know, going out for like one or two extra dinners. And there was no mental discipline to go. That's actually not just, you know, your car insurance. It's also a holiday fund and a emergency fund and a house deposit. So that kind of splitting things into sinking funds really worked for me. And then I would have a sinking fund for the house deposit. And most of the house deposit wasn't a term deposit just because, again, it helped me with discipline because I couldn't touch it without a massive pen. So did you have a backup plan like, you know, okay, I'm looking at moving to Canberra, I'm buying property in Canberra, but I might not get the job in Canberra, I might not stay in Canberra. I mean, obviously it sounds to me like this was very much a, a, a rent investor opportunity, mm, if you will. Yeah. I'll buy this as an investment. I see the potential in this property I see the growth potential did you think about that or was it a little bit more of a win no I I think for me it was an investment first and then a potential place to live second so when I was looking for properties I was looking at something that would have a really strong rental return and Canberra quite luckily it's a pretty uh, population of basically students government people and nurses or people that work at the larger institutions. So, you know, there's stable sources of income there. It's a pretty stable rental market. And I prioritised a place like a two bedroom with, you know, that was neat and tidy and wasn't, didn't need too much work or TLC, something that a renter would be attracted to. And then I thought to myself, well, could I live here and could I afford the mortgage if I did move? And the answer on both of those accounts was yes, this actually makes a lot of sense both in both instances. I did so much research. Like I was looking at blogs, I was looking at rental yields, like the property websites can be really helpful with the comparison. So you know what rent is like and what types of renters as well are looking at your suburb. I was also looking at things like crime stats because I didn't really know Canberra that well. I highly recommend actually because it's really informative to find out like what's happening in the community. Um, and I did actually go and visit the apartment, but it was just like lots of research. I had a colleague say to me, who's like a property investor, make it really unemotional because if you get really invested, you're going to start thinking, oh, well, I want granite bench tops and I want wood floors. And actually renters probably don't care about those things or it's not a priority for them. So be really target the things that are important to the renter that you're looking at. So if it's a family, then maybe it's grass. If it's uh, a young couple, maybe it's having a study or aircon if it's Perth. Like all of those factors are more important than your personal likes and dislikes when it comes to an apartment or whatever investment you're buying. What's the ultimate goal for you? Are you working towards FIRE, which for most people um, or a lot of people will be aware that this is um, financial financial independence and retiring early. Is that the goal or is there something closer day-to-day that you're working towards? I'm really passionate about financial independence and for me, that just looks like passive in, passive income. 
that covers my annual bills. That's that's sort of what I'm aiming towards. I don't. I really love my job. I know that's <laughs> unusual, but I really like what I do, and I don't have this sort of drive to exit the the job market. But I do. I suppose the value is peace of mind. I want work to be optional, and I want to have the ability to take time off if I want or have children and not have this sort of looming financial, oh, you know, you're not paying super and you're not getting paid and this is setting you back behind sort of like looming over me when you're trying to be present with family. I think my mum is older and my grandparents are getting on. I'm really conscious that money is just a tool and I want it to be a tool for peace of mind, for uh, choice as well, to travel, to see family, to spend time with them, to also enable them to live comfortably as well. And ultimately to make sure that I give, you know, my grandparents were migrants, my mum worked really, really hard to get us out of Fairfield and, you know, into a better suburb and she achieved that and I want to kind of continue that legacy of moving the next generation forward and giving my kids our kids all the tools possible to get them to succeed because I do think it's only going to get harder right like I worry about the next generation being able to afford to rent even like what's that good what's the market going to look like for them I don't want to get too so, depressing, though. <laughs> oh, no, but I think you make a really good point there. I mean, mm-hmm. what do you think the world looks like in the next 10, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, if our generation hasn't secured property and if things get worse, how, how does this look to you? My biggest concern is that if, as a country, we're comfortable with policy staying the way it is and there's no structural adjustment to make it easier for first-home buyers to buy and equally no incentive for, you know, property, no de-incentive, I suppose, for property investors to continue accumulating larger and larger portfolios. You know, negative gearing is a, is a really interesting one. I think it incentivizes over-leveraging on property. But if that's the case, then we have to see a discussion around superannuation and the fact that most superannuation, even the 10% or 12% that it's going to be in a couple of years, is still predicated on you owning your home and not paying rent in retirement. And I think we're shooting ourselves and future generations in the foot by not having a wholesome discussion about that now because the earlier someone you know, eats into all of their superannuation or uses it, you know, to pay off a mortgage, you know, we're all buying homes later, best case scenario, I guess, is they're going to be moving on to the pension at a far lower age. And what does that look like for the economy and taxes and, you know, the welfare system? And I think for any young person, just have a look at what the pension is and consider your expenses as a millennial, factor in kids you know you're older you might have health issues and then think about like I actually like the idea for our generation of working backwards like figure out what you want your life to look like at 
60, 50, whatever, and then work back from there. And if you realize that a pension is not going to cut it for the kind of lifestyle that you want to have in retirement, then now is the best place to make those adjustments because the compounding benefits, whether it's buying a house or you know, getting into the property market, maybe not your dream home, but or rent vesting or adjusting your super, you know, contributions, whatever it might be, is going to have a huge, huge, huge impact on what your options are and even what your life looks like in 10, 20, 40 years time. Oh, Alex, it's so scary, isn't it? <laughs> it you know what, um, it is. But I think I... I don't mean to fear monger, but I do, I do think that if you're conscious of the impacts, it's also incredibly powerful to understand that it doesn't have to be scary if you make good choices now or even turn your mind to it. Okay, Alex, so final question. Um, let's say, hypothetically speaking, there's a 23 or a 24 or 25-year-old or even a 35-year-old out there or even someone a bit older. If they're in a position where they're just getting started, they've got a couple hundred dollars in the bank, they're trying to work out how they're going to get ahead, can you give some tips and tricks to help people get motivated and stay on track to either save a deposit or get money into shares or whatever the case is? Like what, what's the best step forward if you're starting from scratch? I think the first thing that helped me was getting control of money coming in. So figuring out how to budget. I know that sounds really simple, but I think a lot of us say we can do it. I certainly, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, can you budget? I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> I'm a pro. <laughs> and I knew nothing, right? Like I would like put the money into accounts and then I'd just dip into my savings. So figuring out how to budget, getting an emergency fund together because you don't want to get out of debt just to go back into debt. Once you've got that goals, I think giving your money a job is a really powerful thing. And if you align your goals to your values, whatever it is, figuring out and giving the money a name and a goal and then a time frame, like smart goals, you know, like um, specific, measurable, etc. Once you do that, I think that psychological win that comes from getting a little bit closer to that number. I mean, you were talking about it before, right? Like seeing it go from seven to 10 to 14. There's a psychological thrill that comes from that. And it can be really slow to start, but you do start to build up momentum. And if you're increasing your income or whatever it is, that can be really addictive. And that was certainly how it was for me. I think once I, once I said, this is house deposit money and the bank account was labeled with a little emoji of a house, I was like, every spare dollar is going to this. Every time I do... You know, I get $50 from my grandma for helping her do her groceries or if I complete a survey or I get a gift card from work, it goes to this goal. And that changed the game for me. It really did. When you buy a small apartment, your aim isn't necessarily to pay down the 30-year loan. It might be to maximise the equity, meaning that property goes up in value, and use it as a stepping stone to your next property. Alex knows how important it is to secure a home at retirement, so she's thinking about it now and taking clever steps to get there. 
Carefully research suburbs and make sure you're choosing a location that will generate a good rental yield. That means the rent, ideally, will pay for most of your mortgage. If you're planning to become a rent vester, you'll want to really carefully research the suburbs that you're considering and make sure you're choosing a location that people will want to live in. If you're considering purchasing interstate, it can pay to engage an expert who knows the market. Next time, we're going to look at what happens when you actually crack the market and find out about what that first year of home ownership can look like. I'll admit it can be tough, but there are things you can do to prepare and little fixes that can add more value to your property and help you take that next step. The information in this podcast is provided for entertainment and educational purposes only. It is general in nature and does not apply specifically to your circumstances. If you're considering purchasing property, it's always best to speak to a licensed financial professional before making any decisions related to your goals.